0: Legal Troubles Abound, A Mysterious iPhone Update, and Ada Lovelace. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how do you do today, sir? I'm very well, Doug, except for some microphone problems
1: because I've been on the road a little bit. So if the sound quality isn't perfect this week, it's because I've had to use alternative recording equipment.
0: Well, that leads us expertly into our tech history segment about imperfection.
1: Oh, thanks,
0: Doug. (laughs) (laughs) On October 11th, 1958, NASA launched its first space probe, the Pioneer 1. It was meant to orbit the moon, but failed to reach lunar orbit thanks to a guidance error. It fell back to Earth and burned up upon re-entry, though still collected valuable data during its 43-hour flight. Yes, I believe it got to
1: 113,000 kilometers above the Earth, and the moon is just shy of 400,000 k's away. My understanding is it, it went off target a bit, and then they tried to correct, but they didn't have the granularity of control that they do these days, where you, you run the rocket motor for a little tiny bursts. And so they corrected it, but they could only correct so much. And then in the end, they figured we're not going to make it to the moon, but maybe we can get it into a high Earth orbit. So it'll keep going around the Earth and we can keep getting scientific measurements. But in the end, it was a question of <laughs> what goes up must come down. Exactly. And as you say, so it was like shooting a very, 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 very powerful bullet way into outer space, well above the Cardan line, which is only 100 kilometers, but in such a direction that it didn't actually escape the influence of the Earth altogether.
0: Pretty good for a first try, though. I mean, not bad. That's 1958. What do you expect? I mean, they did their best. Got a third of the way to the moon. Well, speaking of uh, people not doing their best and crashing, we've got a kind of a lightning round of legal stories here, starting with our friend Sébastien Vachon-Desjardins, who we've spoken about before. He is in hot water in Florida and perhaps beyond.
1: Yes, we've spoken about him on the podcast. I think a couple of times he was a notoriously busy affiliate of the NetWalker ransomware as a service crew. So in other words, he didn't write the ransomware. He was one of the attackers, breakers in and deployers of it. As far as I know, he was quite keen on ransomware. He joined several of these gangs, as it were, signed up to uh, several clubs And apparently, he may have made as much as one third of the overall Netwalker gang's earnings. So he was very, very vigorous. So we're talking about many millions of dollars that he made for himself. And of course, 30% of that's going to the core people. He was arrested in Canada. He was sent to prison. And then he was specially released from prison in Canada, not because they felt sorry for him. They released him from prison so he could be extradited to the U.S., where he decided to plead guilty, and he got 20 years, and apparently when he finishes those 20 years in federal prison, he will be deported to Canada, and he will go straight back in to finish his seven years in Canada. And if I remember correctly, the judge in that case, noting that this is a ransomware gang that is, amongst other things, notorious for attacking healthcare institutions, hospitals... You know, people who really, really can't afford to pay and where the disruption really, really directly affects people's lives. The judge apparently said words to the effect of, if you hadn't actually decided to plead guilty, put your hand up for the offense, I would have sentenced you to life in prison.
0: Yeah, that's wild. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Also kind of low, the former Uber CSO, Joe Sullivan. This story is also wild. They're, They're answering to a a breach that happened with the regulators. And while they're answering to the breach that happened, another breach happens and there's cover-ups.
1: Yes, that was a vigorously watched story by much of the cybersecurity community because Uber have paid all sorts of penalties and apparently they agreed to cooperate. But this wasn't the company being charged. This was the individual who was supposedly in charge of security. He had previously been at Facebook and then was enticed to Uber As far as the jury was concerned, it wasn't so much that the crooks got paid in this case, it's that they got paid to pretend that a data breach was a bug bounty, that they'd disclosed it responsibly rather than actually stolen the data and then extorted it. And of course, the second part of this is, I believe, I'm not sure how you say this word, because you don't hear it in the UK, but it's misprision, I think is how you say it. It basically means covering up a crime. And of course, that deals with the fact, as you say, they're in the middle of an investigation of being reviewed by the FTC. You're about to convince them, yes, we have put in a whole load of precautions since last time. And in the middle of trying (laughs) to plead your case and go, no, no, we're much better than we were. Oh, dear. You lose not just some records. What was it? More than 50 million records relating to people who'd taken Ubers, customers, 7 million drivers. And that included driving license numbers for 600,000 drivers, and SSN social security numbers for 60,000. So that's pretty serious. And then just trying to go, well, let's make it so that we don't have to tell anybody. And then let's go and get the crooks to sign non-disclosure agreements. <laughs> God, It's not funny, Doug.
0: Very good. And a little more cut and dried. If you create an app that uh, purports to be connected with WhatsApp and you collect User credentials, WhatsApp's going to come after you.
1: Yes, this is a case of WhatsApp and Meta. It sounds a bit weird to say both of them, but I guess both legal entities, WhatsApp is owned by Meta, have decided, well, if you you can't beat them, sue them. So this is credential theft so that uh, accounts can be used basically to send fake messages, spam basically, but probably also loads of scams, right? If you've got my password, you can contact all my buddies and say, hey, I made loads of money out of this crypto coin scam and because it's me saying it rather than some random individual off the internet you might be more inclined to believe it so whatsapp figured right we're just going to see you and try and shut down the companies that way and that would basically give us a vehicle to force all these apps to be removed wherever they might appear unfortunately they had done enough treachery to sneak them into google play So the accusation is that they misled more than 1 million WhatsApp users into self-compromising their accounts as part of an account takeover attack. And by self-compromise, it means they just presented them with a fake login page and basically proxied their credentials. Presumably, they kept them and abused them afterwards.
0: Okay, we'll keep an eye on that. Now, please tell us, what does a countess who lived in the first half of the 19th century Have to do with computing and computer science that would be ada lovelace or more
1: formally ada countess of lovelace she married a chap who was called lord lovelace so she became lady lovelace and she was of aristocratic stock and in those days women generally didn't go into science but she did she was keen on mathematics and she met up as as a youngster as a teenager i think with charles babbage who's famous for having invented the difference engine, which could calculate things like trig tables. So therefore, the UK government was interested because where you could do trigonometry, you can do artillery tables, and that means you can make your gunners more accurate on land and sea. But then Babbage figured that's just a pocket calculator in modern terminology. Why did not I build a general purpose computer? And he designed a thing called the analytical engine. And that was what Ada Lovelace was really interested in. In fact, I believe she offered to be Babbage's VC at one point, venture capitalist. I'll bring in the money, but you have to leave the running of the business part of it to me.
0: Let me build the business for you. It's truly amazing, too. Anyone that's listening to this, as you're listening to this story, I want you to keep in mind that she died at 36. She's doing this all in her 20s and early 30s. Amazing yes. things.
1: She died of, of uterine cancer, so she was really in pain and unable to, to work in the end. And she didn't just want to be the business person behind it. Hey, let me build a business. Babbage, I think, there he had a little bit of bitterness towards the establishment for not coming in. He wanted to do it in a more traditional, no, I want to prove I'm right kind of way, rather than go, yeah, just go and find me the money, (laughs) which might be the approach today. So the business side that she proposed never came off, but she was also essentially the world's first computer programmer. Certainly, she was the first published computer programmer. You imagine Babbage tinkering with his analytical engine. He probably came up with some programs before she did, but he never realized them. And certainly he never published, like she did, a sort of treatise on why this analytical engine was important and the fact that it could actually do much more than just numeric calculations. She had this vision that calculators added numbers together. But if you could do numeric calculations and on the basis of those make decisions, what we might now call if then else, then you could actually represent and work with all sorts of other stuff, such as logical propositions, devising proofs, or even working with music, if you had some mathematical or numerical way of representing music. Now, I don't know whether digital music will ever take off, Doug, but if it ever does, <laughs> <laughs> we <have eight> <laughs> she was there so in things. like 1840 so thinking what? and so cool. writing about this. She was, believe it or not, the daughter of the famous or infamous poet Lord Byron. Now, apparently her mother and father kind of parted ways. So I don't believe she ever met him. She was sort of the unknown daughter to him. Now, Byron famously was on vacation in Switzerland once where Rain kept him and his friends that he was vacationing with indoors. And those friends were Percy and Mary Shelley. And Byron said, hey, let's have a horror story writing competition. And what he did <laughs> and what Percy Shelley did came to nothing. No one remembers what they wrote. But Mary Shelley, that is apparently where she came up with Frankenstein Wow! or the modern Prometheus which is essentially all about artificial intelligence and human-created thought machines, if you like, and how it ends badly. And Ada, Byron's daughter, was actually the first person to write in a scientific way about can machines think in the notes that she wrote on the analytical engine. She did not share the same horror story concerns that her father's chums had. The way she wrote it, scientists generally had a more literary bent in those days, the analytical engine has no pretensions whatever to originate anything. It can do whatever we know how to order it perform. It can follow analysis, but it has has no power of anticipating any analytical relations or truths. So she saw computing devices, general purpose computing devices, as a way of helping us understand and work out things that would be impossible for regular human
0: minds to do.
1: But I don't think she saw that they could be a replacement for human minds.
0: And again, keep in mind, she's writing this in 1842. Exactly.
1: It's one thing to hack in real life. It's another to hack on imaginary computers that you know could exist, but nobody's built one yet. Because the problem (laughs) was, because these computers were mechanical and required mechanical gears, They required absolute perfection in manufacturing, or there'd just be this cumulative error that would make them lock up due to backlash, the fact the gears don't mesh perfectly. And I think, as we've said in the podcast before, ironically, it took the design of digital computers that are essentially extensions of the analytical engine that can control computerized metal cutting machines with sufficient precision before we could make a difference engine or an analytical engine that actually worked. And if that isn't a fascinatingly circular story, I don't yeah. know what is. <laughs> so Ada Lovelace was in the middle of this, proselytizer, evangelist, scientist, mathematician, computer scientist, and as a budding venture capitalist saying to Babbage, let go of all your business interests, hand them over to me. Now I move in the right circles to get find you the money. I'll get you the investment. Let's see what we can do with this. And for better or for worse, Babbage balked at that and apparently died essentially in poverty, rather a broken man. One wonders what might have happened had he done so.
0: Well, it's a fascinating story. I urge you to head to Naked Security to read it. It's called Move Over Patch Tuesday. It's Ada Lovelace Day. Great long read. Very interesting. And now uh, let's wrap up with this uh, mysterious iPhone update, which is a so-called one bug fix. These are not common.
1: No, mostly when you get your Apple updates, because you don't know when they're coming. There isn't a patch Tuesday where you can predict. They just arrive, and then there's this giant list of stuff that they have fixed since the, the last one they did. And occasionally, there's a zero-day, massive emergency, and you get an Apple update, and it says, oh, well, we're fixing one or maybe two things. And this was just suddenly arrived, iOS 16 only. I was about to go to bed, Doug. It was quite late, and I just thought I'll just have a look at my email, see if Doug sent me anything. And <laughs> there was this thing from Apple, iOS sixteen point zero point three, and I thought that's sudden. I wonder what's gone wrong. It must be a zero day. So I went into the the security bulletin. It's not a zero day. It's only a denial of service attack, not an actual remote code execution. The mail app can be made to crash, and yet Apple suddenly pushed out this update, and it just says impact processing a maliciously crafted mail message may lead to a denial of service an input validation issue was addressed with improved input validation strange double use of the word validation there cv-2022-22658 and that's all we know and it doesn't say oh it was reported by such and such a bug hunting group or thanks to an anonymous researcher so i presume they found it themselves and I can only guess that they felt they needed to fix this really quickly because it could accidentally lock you out of your phone or make it almost unusable. Because that's the problem with denial of service bugs when they're in messaging apps, isn't it? You think, oh, denial of service, the app crashes, woohoo, you just started again. But the problem with a messaging app is that, A, it tends to run in the background so yep. you can get a message at any time. Mm-hmm. B, you don't get to choose who sends you messages. Other <laughs> people do. Yeah. And C, it may be that in order to get into the app to delete the rogue message, you have to wait for the app to load and it decides, oh, I need to show you this message that you want to crash, what I call a crash, go to crash error. In other words, <laughs> that maybe you can't fix it because while you're booting your phone, or if you restart your phone, by the time you get to the point that you could jump in and hit delete the message, the app's already crashed again, too late. So we know that there have been sort of so-called text of death problems in iOS before. Uh, We've got a list of them in the Naked Security article. They've made quite fascinating stories. So we don't know whether it was an image, was it the way that glyphs, character images get formed, character combinations, text direction, we don't know. It's certainly worth getting the patch, because my gut feeling is if Apple thinks it's important enough to put it in a security bulletin, which has that one and only one fix when it's not a zero day and it's not remote code execution and it's not elevation of privilege, then they're probably worried what would happen if anyone else found out about it. So maybe you should be too. It's also, Doug, a fantastic reminder that although people tend to prioritize vulnerabilities from remote code execution at the top, elevation of privilege, information leakage, well, denial of service, okay, the server can crash, but I can always start it up again. That can nevertheless be a really troublesome sort of problem that although it might not steal your data or ransomware your files, it could nevertheless prevent you using your computer, getting at your data and doing real work.
0: Yeah, we have the issue here of you need to update, but if you are experiencing this problem, you might not be able to get to the update if your phone keeps crashing. So that leads us into our reader question for the week here on the update Posts that we're talking about, Naked Security Reader, Peter asks, not an Apple user here, but isn't there an option for Apple users to log into their email accounts in a browser, which hopefully doesn't crash like the app, and delete the mail there instead of wiping your device?
1: Well, that's certainly true for me, the way I use my iPhone, Doug. I can read the same mail on my phone as in Outlook Web App in my browser. So it's a good starting point if you're locked out of your phone, if you happen to have a laptop handy. The problem is that. When you've deleted mails, say in your web browser or via the native app on your laptop, your phone mail app still has to sync with the server to know that it's got to delete those messages. And if on the way there it processes the message that's now about to delete, it could still get into the crash tastic situation, couldn't it? So the problem with that comment is the only real answer I can give is not enough info can't say for sure, but jolly well hope you can do that. (laughs) Yeah, give it a (laughs) try at least. Yeah, Yeah, give it a try. If you really get locked out, that your phone crashes as soon as it starts, you'd like to think you could do what Apple call a DFU, a direct firmware update, where you you basically start afresh. But the problem is to enable that, to stop that being used for evil, it essentially involves a wipe and start over. So you would lose all the data on the phone assuming that would work. So I guess the the answer to that question is, try the least intrusive way of solving it that you can first. Try beating the app on the phone, the messaging app. This is what worked for some of the previous iOS things. You basically reboot your phone, you type in your lock code really quickly, you get into the app as fast as you can, and you click delete before the phone gets there and starts the process that eventually runs out of memory. So you might have enough time to do it on the phone itself. If not, try doing it via an external app that manages the same set of data. And if you're utterly stuck, then I suppose a flash and reinstall is your only solution.
0: Um, all right. Thank you, Peter, for sending that in. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to Stay Stay secure. Secure.